how good it is to sing songs that give expression to our hearts, our God, how delightful it is to hear in unison your people lift their voices to your praise, and how much your goodness and your grace is expressed even in that very thing that we would have grace to sing of, and that you would delight in delighting your people with yourself. How good you are. And how good you are to give us what we could not achieve on our own. Not only salvation, but even that ongoing ability to learn and to grow more in the likeness of Christ as your Spirit works in us through the ministry of the Word. And so we ask even now that you would, by your grace, enable us to hear not only with physical ears, but spiritual ears, to hear your voice, as it were, and to see not only with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes, your glory and your majesty, even this morning in the millennial kingdom. We offer our time to you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we will be wrapping up our look at some of those things dealing with the last days here on earth. Of course, we are in the last days now in a general sense. That began when the appearing of Christ and particularly with the ascension of Christ and His sending of the Holy Spirit, having received the gift from the Father that He poured out onto the church. And... We are in those days, but there are those specific days that we've been considering that was brought before us by the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 as he brought us into what is known as Daniel's 70th week. That is the last seven years of God's dealing not only with this earth, but particularly with the nation of Israel completing all of his prophetic plans for that covenant people that he called out by his own sovereign grace and for his own sovereign purposes. We've taken a break then the last couple of weeks after looking at the second coming of Christ and considered the rapture, and this morning we will then consider the millennial kingdom. And as you know, we will begin a series with Pastor Reardon next week or in two weeks on the book of Ephesians. I want to begin this morning by noting that men naturally long for a world in which there is peace in which there is no more violence, in which there's no more anger, no more hostility among nations and among individuals. A time when that kind of hurt is put away from mankind. In fact, you could do an internet search on your own and find that there are whole websites devoted to this very idea of world peace and how do we bring about world peace. However, that peace, despite these websites and despite the desire of men, is elusive and it will remain elusive because of the reality of sin. The reality of sin. In fact, if you were to scan these websites and those who promote this idea of world peace, the very expression that they give to this desire is a peace in which There is no religion and therefore no God to submit to. This very desire for peace among fallen man is an expression that is framed in a way that actually marks man's rebellion to God. Which is the very reason that peace will never come in this life anyway. Let me give you just a couple of examples here, not to belabor this point. But there is one website that's World Peace Prayer Society in which they long for peace, for the God who's undefined, and certainly if He's undefined, then He's not demanding. And He's certainly not a God who will judge. They say this, May peace prevail on earth is an all-inclusive message and prayer. It is a meeting place of the heart, bringing together people of all faiths, backgrounds, and culture to embrace the oneness, capital O, of our planetary family. That is a cry for peace that is an expression of rebellion at the same time. The goal of this peace, again, is not worship of God, but the desire for self-fulfillment without concern for righteousness and holiness and obedience to God. 
Another put it this way, another website. Most people are good and just want a nice place to live, good food, a job, somebody to love and to love them, the basic human needs. Certainly, again, no need for a God in this kind of world peace. Again, in all of this, there is a rebellious desire for peace that does not require and rejoice in having every heart tuned to the triune God of creation and ultimately revealed in Christ. A peace made possible only through His accomplishment of redemption on our behalf and our faith and our trust in Him. So this peace will come, but it will not come until the true King returns and removes every rebel from his kingdom until he establishes his righteousness on the earth and until his glory and his honor is the focal point of all mankind. This is the kingdom of Christ on earth and this is the subject of this morning's message as we consider topically the millennial kingdom of Christ. Now, it's listed in your bulletin. We're going to essentially look at this under five headings. And the first of which is to simply define the kingdom. And we ask, what is then the millennial kingdom? What is the millennial kingdom? The millennial kingdom simply is a period of 1,000 years wherein fulfillment of the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenants, particularly God keeping His promises through Christ will physically be present on this earth as Messiah, reigning on the earth over a resurrected saints of all ages, both Old Testament and New Testament and tribulation saints. In fact, maybe a more extended definition can be taken from our own statement of faith, and it is this, I quote, Christ's messianic kingdom will last for a thousand years on earth. During this time, the resurrected saints will reign with him over Israel and all the nations. This reign will be preceded by the overthrow of the Antichrist and the false prophet and by the removal of Satan from the world. The kingdom itself will be the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel to restore the people to the land which they forfeited through their disobedience. The result of their disobedience was that they were temporarily set aside but will at this time be renewed through repentance to enter into the land of blessing. Our Lord's reign will be characterized by harmony, justice, peace, righteousness, and long life on the earth. As Christ ends his earthly reign, he will release Satan, end quote. That in a rather broad definition is the millennial kingdom. Now the fact of the millennial kingdom, or at least using the language of a millennial kingdom, is undeniable because it's so clearly set forth in Scripture, particularly Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. There, in a matter of just six short verses, that is, verses 2 through 7, the millennial kingdom, or a specific time period of 1,000 years, is mentioned six times. It marks out a specific period of time in which Satan is bound and resurrected saints live on the earth under the reign of Christ. Now, it's not surprising then, as when we consider the rapture and any of these topics for that matter, that there is also a variety of opinion or understanding of this millennial kingdom. And two primary areas of disagreement are this. The first has to do with the definition of the millennial kingdom. Is it a physical kingdom primarily that he's speaking of? Or is it a spiritual kingdom primarily that he's speaking of? Another question has to do with the timing. Will Christ return before or after the millennial kingdom? And it is essentially these two questions then that comprise the different approaches to our understanding of the millennial kingdom. So let's note, secondly, then, different views of the millennial kingdom. As with the rapture, there are three primary systems of thought. Three primary systems of thought. And again, as with the rapture, there are variations within each of these, but these are, in a nutshell, and in essence, what the three approaches to the millennial kingdom are. And again, there's no way to be comprehensive in treating any of these uh, positions. It would involve a discussion on many levels of systematic theology, of hermeneutics, and then a discussion of specific Bible passages. So this is no way meant to be comprehensive and certainly not exhaustive, but hopefully clear enough to set the framework of, that this discussion usually takes place in and then lead us to what we would hold to be the right and correct biblical position on the millennial kingdom. 
While I will mention these generally now, we will discuss some of the specific arguments when we actually look at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. So we'll save that until then. The first is this, and we've discussed some of this off and on as we've gone through uh, Matthew 24 and our understanding of the second coming in the tribulation period. But the first is this, amillennialism, amillennialism. In terms of a theological system, amillennialism came about between the 4th and the 5th century by one you well know of, Augustine, in his book, The City of God, is where he laid that out. It was actually suggested first by Origen in the 2nd century, but it was really developed and took hold after Augustine in the 4th, who was around in the 4th to 5th century. And it was largely the position of much of the medieval church and the Reformation church. Now, what does amillennialism mean? Well, as we've noted before, whenever you in Greek put a little that little letter A in front of a word, it negates the word. So technically, amillennialism would mean no millennium. No millennium. But however, that's not an accurate representation of what they're saying, those who hold to an amillennial position. Amillennialists do not deny a millennium. They only deny that it is to be understood in a literal, physical, thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. That's what they're saying. That millennium, they say, does not exist or will not exist. In other words, they maintain the thousand years of Revelation chapter 20 is symbolic of a long but indefinite period of time that describes the present church age. So in other words, the millennial kingdom in this view is spiritually fulfilled in the church and the millennium symbolically marks the period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming at the end of the age. After which there will be one single general resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So in this view, we as the church are currently in the millennial kingdom. We are in the millennial kingdom. We are experiencing it now. Now, some within the millennium, this view believe that this kingdom is actually being fulfilled not on earth, but it's being fulfilled in heaven. So those who have died and gone to be with Christ are experiencing the millennial kingdom there at this time. That's the minority position. The majority position is that it is being fulfilled now on the earth, literal in that sense, but in a spiritual sense, but in a spiritual reality as Christ who is the Davidic king, is reigning from heaven in the hearts of his people. That's the more common view of it. Now, the key issue with amillennialism is hermeneutical. And we've mentioned this briefly when we compared the two systems of covenantalism and dispensationalism in the past. I'm sure that you remember every detail of that as the laughter goes. But I'll just remind you of one brief part of it here. And this really is the key area of uh, disagreement and discussion. All millennialism is a position that is arrived at only because the covenant of grace as a theological system is superimposed over all of Scripture. A result of this is this, that it gives interpretive priority to the New Testament. In other words, it says that all of Scripture is to be understood first from the lens of the New Testament looking back. In other words, we don't understand the Old Testament on its own and then the New Testament and correlate those. We understand everything solely through the lens of the New Testament. Therefore, that leads to equating the church with Israel. Or Israel with the church. In other words, the church is seen then as a fulfillment of all of the promises that were given to the nation of Israel. Inevitably, what this does then is it means then that we are to go back and understand the Old Testament prophecies concerning a far distant and future kingdom for the nation of Israel in a spiritual sense. In a spiritual sense that is now being fulfilled in the church. In other words, those texts are not to be taken in their plain, literal, and historical grammatical meaning. They are now to be understood through this idea again of the church in a spiritual sense. However, it's interesting, if the Old Testament passages are allowed to speak for themselves in a plain reading of the text, you will naturally end up with what is known as a dispensational position. In other words, that there is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, yet future. In fact, one representative of the all-millennial view speaks for others. 
says this, and I quote, Now we must frankly admit that a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah, Messiah as the premillennialist pictures, end quote. The argument then goes, but we shouldn't understand them in their plain and literal sense. Why? Because the New Testament has priority. The covenant of grace is a theological system imposed on it. And therefore, we are to understand them spiritually and not in an overly literal sense. The problem with this is that it inevitably leads to inconsistencies in the different passages. And it places few controls on to decide what is spiritual and what is not. And exactly what does this spirituality or how is this spiritual meaning to be brought out. And third, and very importantly, it removes the essence of the promise that God had given to his people. It makes that now a non-promise in essence. So that's amillennialism. We'll look more at that down when we look at to Revelation 20. A second position is this, postmillennialism. This position is largely credited to Daniel Whitby from the 17 and 1800s, and it holds to a return of Christ after the millennium. After that's post, right? Post-tribulational after the tribulation, postmillennial after the millennial, Christ will return. Along with the all-millennialist, the post-millennialist maintains that the language of 1,000 years is to be understood symbolically. It's to be understood symbolically. And it is, again, referring to the entire time then between the first advent and the second advent of Christ, or the first coming of Christ and the return of Christ at the end of the age. Now, some hold that it refers to the last part of this age in which the kingdom of Christ experiences a long golden age after which Christ will return to the earth. Let me read to you, because this is the most succinct uh, probably definition of postmillennialism, given by one named Lorraine Bettner, who has written fantastic works that we benefit from greatly as a church, but in this area we would part ways. Nonetheless, he describes it in this way, and I quote, Postmillennialism is that view of the last thing which holds that the kingdom of God is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel and the saving work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of individuals. That the world is eventually to be Christianized and that the return of Christ is to occur at the close of a long period of righteousness and peace commonly called the millennium. It should be added that on post-millennial principles, the second coming of Christ will be followed immediately by the general resurrection, the general judgment, and the introduction of heaven and hell in their fullness, end quote. Now, this view was popular before World War I. After World War I, it kind of fell out of favor. And then after World War II, it was almost extinct, but not totally because the massive destruction and the violence of these two world wars really put a damper on the idea that the world was moving towards a time of peace and righteousness and unity. However, there is a contemporary resurgence of this idea, popularly defended by one Doug Wilson, who again has done much to benefit the church, but in this area we would part ways. Now it should be noted that there are two forms then of postmillennialism. And we're going to get to the text here eventually. This is just to set a framework for you. The first is a biblical form. And that would be where Doug Wilson is, who holds to the doctrines of grace, who understands the centrality of the necessity of faith in the atonement of Christ and God's accomplishment of redemption in His Son. He would hold firmly to the authority of Scripture and so forth. But they would hold to this idea of moving toward a golden age. There is a, another form that is unbiblical that is reflected in the social gospel. The idea that this, this world that we're moving toward is not one that is centered on the redemption in Christ, but rather a, a human-focused idea of just justice in society be increasing, but without reference to the atonement. There is a third form, I should note, uh, actually, that is known as dominion theology or theonomy. And it teaches then that the Mosaic law is still operative and should be operative in the world and will increase in influence and be what directs government and justice in the world and so on and so forth. So there's amillennialism, postmillennialism, and then the third is premillennialism. Premillennialism. 
And as the name attests, this view states that Christ will return before he establishes his kingdom on earth for a literal period of 1,000 years. Now, because nothing can be simple, there are also within this camp two different primary views. One is known as historic premillennialism. And this was actually the main view of the church up to the time of Augustine in the third century. And this essentially states this. That Christ will return at the end of the tribulation. So this is a post-tribulational position. That he will return at the end of the tribulation. That when he returns, he will rapture all of the saints who are his at that time. And then immediately return with them to the earth. Judge the, the world and establish his kingdom for a thousand years on the earth. As I mentioned, this was the common understanding of the early church. Let me give you just one example. Justin Martyr from the second century in a popular work called Dialogue with Trofo, he was an apologist, an early Christian apologist, says this, But I and others, I'm quoting, who are right-minded Christians on all points, are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged, as the prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. And then referring to John chapter 20, he says this a little later on, And further, there was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ, who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believe in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem, and that thereafter the general and, in short, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. That's historic premillennialism. There is then what we've already noted, pre-tribulational premillennialism, which, as you can gather, says that Christ will return at the beginning of the tribulation, take his church out of the world, while the Father and the Son pour out their wrath on a rebellious creation, and he completes his purposes for the nation of Israel, after which he will return with the raptured saints, destroy all of his enemies, and establish his kingdom on the earth for a period of 1,000 years. That's essentially what we covered last week. Now with that, as a rather long introduction, turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. And let's look then thirdly at the key text for the Millennial Kingdom. The key text for the Millennial Kingdom. Revelation chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. 1 through 10. Now before we look at it, let me note up front this. Revelation 20 is not the only text to speak of the Millennial Kingdom. It's not the only text to speak of the Millennial Kingdom, which we'll note a little later on. However, it is the most concise, and it alone offers to us, or gives us the information of the duration of the kingdom, namely a thousand years, and where this kingdom fits into God's larger prophetic plan, namely after the tribulation and the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. So that's what it offers to us. And so it becomes then one of the central texts of discussion in relation to the Millennial Kingdom. And again, we're not going to be able to cover every detail. This is not meant to be an exposition of all of Revelation chapter 20, but we will walk through it and note some of the highlights and some of the important uh, interpretive issues as far as this discussion goes. Before we do that, let's first read it, and then we'll swing back around and walk through it. Uh, Begin with me in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then... I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. 
When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Swing back around to verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3. And this sets the context then for the millennial kingdom. Christ has now returned with his saints and destroyed all earthly rebellion. In Revelation chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, and the ending there in verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of him who sat on the horse. So he has destroyed all of his enemies. He has destroyed the Antichrist and the false prophet. And in verse 20, they have been thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So they have been thrown into their place of judgment, in the place where they will eternally be. Look at the second part of verse 20. Then, or excuse me, in verse 1, note how it begins. Then, marking events following what has just been stated, after the events that coincide with the second coming of Christ, then the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, is bound, in verse 2, for a thousand years. This binding and judgment of Satan is then described as him being thrown into the abyss and that is then chained and shut and sealed over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Now let's notice then several points about this context. The limitations, first of all, put on Satan are not partial, but they are total. They are not partial limitations. They are total limitations. In other words, it is an utter removal of his ability to deceive that John lays before us. Now on this point, an amillennialist will argue that it is this beginning in verse 1 is essentially a recapitulation of the first and second coming of Christ. Thus, the binding of Satan means that Satan has, after the first coming of Christ and all that he accomplished in that... Satan has been dramatically weakened or lessened in his ability to deceive the nations of the earth. In other words, they would state then that wherever the gospel goes forth, it has the freedom to do its work essentially in the hearts of those nations. Satan cannot stop it. Now this, by this, they do not mean that he cannot deceive at all. But again, that wherever the gospel is preached, he has no ability to stop it. There are several problems with this. First of all, the language of verse 2 does not merely speak again of limitation or weakening, but of utter removal of all activity of Satan on the earth and all ability to receive at this time. That's what he says. The New Testament makes abundantly clear that Satan is able to deceive the nations and in fact wields a tremendous amount of power and authority granted to him by God on the earth presently and will until the time of his final destruction. Just a mere sampling. 1 John 5.19 We know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The power, the authority, the control, as it were, of Satan. That's presently, that's right now. 2 Corinthians 4.4 He is called the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And beloved, that is in a nation where the gospel is preached, such as America, as same as it is in a nation like China or North Korea or anywhere else. That is his activity universally. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Satan is the spirit now presently working in the sons of disobedience. And this could go on. He's a like a lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. He is in 2 Timothy 1 who holds men captive to do his will. He's even active within the church. 
As Paul writes the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 and tells them he fears lest they should be deceived as Eve was deceived by Satan and his evil workers, Satan who himself appears as an angel of light and in that context who appears through those who are false apostles and naming and saying that they are then messengers of God. He is very active. The abyss in connection with the chain here in Revelation, in this context, again, has the meaning of confinement and not limitation. And beloved, it is extremely difficult then to understand how in any meaningful sense of language or words that Satan could be said to be limited in his ability now any more than he was in the past. It's simply difficult to understand that. The fact is that the truth of God went to the nations according to God's purpose before the coming of Christ. Daniel had influence in the nation of Babylon. Jonah had influence in the nation of Assyria, where Nineveh was the capital, the nation of Assyria. We have many examples of God's purpose being revealed in the Old Testament. So the plain meaning of the text then is that Satan is, by God's sovereign plan, bound and utterly removed from exercising any influence on the earth for a period of 1,000 years, and Christ's kingdom of righteousness then will be unhindered on the earth. Note secondly there then, the limitation of Satan is absolute and temporary. But temporary. It's absolute but temporary. After these things he will be released for a short time. There's a clear contrast here between the period of 1,000 years and the short time at the end. And this could hardly then be referring to the tribulation period or the rise of Antichrist because, again, the New Testament makes clear that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the world and will continue to increase in its influence until the appearing or the revelation and the coming of that final man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, whom Christ will destroy at the end of the tribulation. The significance of the rise of the Antichrist is not attributed to the release of Satan from being bound in Scripture, but to the removal of God's restraint on the earth, which most likely there, in my understanding of it, is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. But in either case, it's attributed to God removing His influence, not to Satan being released and unbound from the abyss. So it's hard to make that short time in any way fit the tribulation period. Look at verse 4. And this marks then those who will be in this millennial kingdom in their activity. He notes that some will be given authority and rule and reigning with Christ. He says, I saw thrones, judgment was given to them. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now who are these who came to life? And I'm going to have to go very quickly here. Who are these who are reigning and judging? Well, it certainly includes the disciples whom Jesus told in Matthew 28 that they will... He says, You who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you shall sit with... She'll sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. It certainly includes the disciples in a unique role during this time. It includes Old Testament saints who are said to reign with God in Daniel 9 or 7, 27. And it includes the New Testament saints who are also said to reign with Christ. Many examples. Let me just give you one. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 says this. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent then to constitute the smallest law courts? He repeats the same thing about judging and reigning with Christ, 2 Timothy 2.12, Revelation 2.26, and other passages. And I would have you note a brief observation that when he says that, he is speaking in the future tense. In other words, he's looking forward to what will happen, not what is happening right now in the church, but to a set of conditions that will be true in the future. In other words, he's not talking then about some millennial reign now or some time of judging now in the church, he's talking about a future time, a future period where this will take place. What will they be judging? 
Well, they may be participating, and in fact, I think will be participating in the judgment of the sheep and goats mentioned in Matthew chapter 25, which we'll get to eventually. They may also be judging, and I think, in fact, are judging in the sense of exercising justice and righteousness over those who have entered into the millennial kingdom, having come through the tribulation preserved by God, we looked at this last week, but are not yet in resurrected bodies. The millennial kingdom, then, is a time where righteousness reigns, but there is yet sin that will be present on the earth. Zechariah 14.7 says that God will bring discipline to those who do not go up to worship in Jerusalem. Isaiah 65.20 mentions those who die at less than 100 will be thought accursed by God. So this will be a time where righteousness reigns... Christ's presence on earth executes, and those who are serving with him, reigning with him, are executing justice immediately, but yet there is sin. And of course, that is evident at the very end when Satan is released and deceives those who are in this kingdom but unregenerate. Notice here briefly, and this is an extremely important point, verses 4 through 6. That there is a distinction then between the first, also there is a distinction between the first and the second resurrection. There's a distinction between the first and the second resurrection. And again, this is an absolutely crucial and essential point to understand. These two resurrections are here defined or revealed as being separated by what John describes as a period of a thousand years, a millennium, the millennial kingdom. Now, to understand this as two literal, physical resurrections means that the thousand years cannot refer to the time between Christ and first, second coming. Otherwise, you would have the resurrection before the second coming of Christ. That simply, you cannot have that if these are the same kind of resurrection. That's a problem for both post-millennialist and amillennialist. So, how does that, is that understood then? How is that understood Well, look at verse 5. He says this. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. Over this, the second death has no power. So how then is this dilemma gotten around? Well, first by this. The argument is, within an all-millennialist position, that the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection and the second resurrection is, in fact, a physical resurrection. So, in other words, the first resurrection has to do with the new birth, regeneration, coming to life in Christ in the sense of experiencing spiritual life, being brought from spiritual death to a place of spiritual life, which Paul refers to in many places, namely Ephesians chapter 2. And so then that is the explanation. Again, we would say there are some problems with this. Namely, observe in verse 4 and verse 5 that the same verb, and in fact the same verb tense for come to life, is used in both descriptions. It's used in both descriptions. Look at the end of verse 4. They came to life. That's actually one word there, that verb. They came to life. Look at verse 5. The rest did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. In other words, come to life is an event. It's something that happens to those who are part of the first resurrection and those who are part of the second resurrection. It's the same thing that happens to both. He's not dividing between spiritual and physical. He's saying both came to life. And if resurrection is the term used, and it is to describe the first one, it is then what describes also the second one, a physical bodily resurrection. That is, in fact, part, the first resurrection is a physical bodily resurrection. Secondly, since the second resurrection is physical, it's arbitrary to make the first resurrection non-physical. Again, they are set side by side as the same type of event. The only difference is that one is unto blessing and one is unto damnation. That's the only distinguishing mark. Thirdly, the first resurrection, and again, notice this in verse 4. The first resurrection is specifically applied to those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. 
And again, I would just argue that it is beyond any reasonable reading of the text to make that anything other than a physical resurrection. They are beheaded, i.e. dead, and then they are made to live. They are brought to life. This is a physical resurrection that he's speaking of in verse 4 through 6. Now, while Scripture does speak of a single resurrection in some places, it also makes clear that there there are different stages to this future resurrection, as is at least noted here and in other places. And we've covered this before. Part of understanding prophetic literature is to recognize when the prophet is seeing an event in the far-off way and it's combined as one event, but as the progress of Revelation goes, we understand that it is, in fact, two events or multiple events, such as the coming of Christ. Who would have thought it was a first event, advent and then a second? And there are other examples. And so it is with the resurrection. So it is with the resurrection. Now let's note lastly in verses 7 through 10 that there then is a final release and destruction of Satan. Again, this takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom and demonstrates once again the righteousness of God in judgment and the utter wickedness of men. Even after a long period of time of seeing the glory of Christ on the earth, of seeing resurrected saints and living among them on the earth, yet there will still be unregenerate men and women who are there. Just as in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, though they were in perfect conditions and at the beginning, they had no presence of sin in them even to motivate them or prompt them that way. It came from completely within themselves in that mystery of sin. It's the sin of Israel. They rejected God, though they witnessed His miracles, though they witnessed His deliverance from Egypt, His miracles in the wilderness, and they saw the miracles and heard the word of the prophets, and yet they rejected Him. So it was those who saw the miracles of Christ the testimony of his life, knew the reality of the empty tomb, and yet they rejected him. So in the millennial kingdom, some will be witnesses to the unique glories of Christ, yet have unconverted hearts that will in the end be deceived by Satan and ultimately destroyed with him. The main idea here, the point, is this. It's the very theme of Scripture One of the primary themes is this, is that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Men always left to themselves will sin and reject God. God must bring about His own salvation, and He does. Now, I've mentioned this before. Where do these unbelievers come from? Well, again, we've noted that, but Zechariah 4.16 notes this. Any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem... They're identifying that there were some kept at that time when God brings His judgment. Matthew 24, 22 says, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But in fact, some life was saved. All the nations out of the, will be gathered before Him. Some among those nations, the sheep, will go into the millennial kingdom. Those preserved through the tribulation but are not, do not have resurrected bodies will have children. If a child dies before 100, he will be thought to be accursed. And apparently some of these children, which will multiply quickly because of the longer lifespans, just as conditions before the flood and the long lifespans allowed the earth to populate quickly, so it will be in the millennial kingdom. And some of these will be unconverted. They will have an external conformity to righteousness and justice, but they will have hearts that do not love Christ, and that are open and ready and primed to be deceived by Satan when he is released from the abyss at the end of the thousand years. Note in verse 10, this destruction of Satan, or let's see in verse 9, says they came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints, and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of the fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. Notice here then that this cannot refer to the return of Christ. 
That's clearly then the destruction of Satan is attributed to Christ himself. Here it is attributed to fire which comes down out of heaven. It's not the same event. It's in a different event. Which is not in agreement with an amillennialist position. In fact, this is a unique event that will happen at the end of a unique age, namely the millennial kingdom. Notice also that when Satan is cast into this place of judgment, who is already there? Who's already there? The beast and the false prophet are already there. Why? Because they've been there for a thousand years. They were thrown there at the return of Christ to a place of permanent judgment. Now at the end of that time of the millennial kingdom where Satan has been bound, he's been released and he's been thrown there also where they already are. In other words, this cannot then be the return of Christ, the second coming. This is a different event altogether. What happens after this? Well, then there's the great white throne judgment. The present earth is destroyed in some cataclysmic and massive way. The heaven and earth fled away from the presence of Christ. And then there is the great white throne judgment where all unbelievers will be judged. All unbelievers from all time standing before Christ who will judge them and then cast them into eternal hell. After which there will be in verse Chapter 21, a new heaven and a new earth that comes down. And that, beloved, is our eternal dwelling place. The new heavens and the new earth where we will be experiencing the fullness of our salvation and fellowship with the Father and the Son and by the Spirit forever. Forever. And that's our hope. Well, let's look then fourthly and briefly then. What is the millennial kingdom like? What is the millennial kingdom like? What is this thousand years going to be like? What is the, what is the character of it? What are the, the glories that we are to anticipate in this part of the kingdom? In this part of God's redemptive plan? Well, of course it will be glorious. It's a magnificent display of God's sovereign power and glory. And while it's difficult to rush through passages, we'll need to do so. But let me paint, if I could, just a very brief picture of what this kingdom will be like. And I want you to notice also in some of these descriptions the uniqueness of them. And by uniqueness, I mean this, that they are details that cannot be fit into the eternal state and they are details that cannot be fit into the present state. In other words, they are unique. They refer to a time that is fulfilled in the millennial kingdom but cannot quite be made sense of in any other way if they're taken at face value. What will this be like? Well, it will be a time of universal peace and righteousness and joy on the earth. Listen to Isaiah chapter 2, referring to this future time. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is a time of universal peace. This is a time where Christ reigns in a government of peace. Listen to what Isaiah 9, 7 says. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's a time of peace. It's a time of righteousness. 
And remember, it is a time when Satan and all of those evil forces of darkness are bound, are set aside, and there's not the temptation and that kind of influence of evil that we know in our world today. But it is a kingdom where righteousness dwells. It's a time of great spiritual rest and joy. It's a time, if you'll notice in Isaiah 2, where Israel will fulfill her ultimate role of being a light to the nations, something that she never fulfilled in her history as a nation. It will not happen until this future kingdom that is anticipated. But in this future kingdom, she will fulfill that role. She will fulfill that role. Listen to what he says. They will come up to the chief mountain, the mountain of the house of the Lord, and the nations will stream to it. The nations will stream to it. Listen to what he says. Just listen. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. The nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. There will be a glorious reinstitution of a regenerate Israel that will be preeminent among the nations according to God's prophetic word. And Christ will sit as king over all of the nations. He will sit as king over all of the nations. Listen to these familiar words in Zechariah chapter 14. And the Lord, this is after Christ has come, he has planted his feet on the Mount of Olives. There has been dramatic geographical change. Rivers and streams of life are flowing out of Jerusalem. He says, it is a unique day that is known to the Lord. He says, verse 8, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea. And might I note that in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sea. This is a unique period of time. He's not talking about the new heavens and the new earth here. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord, verse 9, will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. He will be honored. He will be glorified. He will be exalted among all of the nations. You could read Psalm 72, a psalm referring to Solomon, but ultimately as all the Davidic psalms having their final anticipation in the reign of Messiah, the true son of David, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It will be a unique presence of the Spirit and the fullness of righteousness. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 14. In verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. We as the people of God experience that in part now, but it will be experienced then in a fullness that we are yet to know. What else will it be like? It will be a time when the curse is removed from the earth. The curse is removed from the earth. What does that mean? It means that the hostility that exists not only between men, but men and the animal kingdom, as well as the animal kingdom among itself. Try putting a lamb with a lion right now and sees what happens. You have one of them having lunch. But not so in this new time, this time that is coming, when this hostility and this animosity and this enmity is removed. Listen to the description here. Revelation 11, or excuse me, Isaiah 11. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place place will be glorious. Imagine that. 
Imagine that, a time of such peace and a time of such harmony. It will be a time when disease and sickness are removed, which were demonstrated when Christ came the first time and he essentially banished possession and sickness and blindness and all of these things from the nation of Israel and from the land of Palestine, wherever he went. Listen to this. When John came, John the Baptist, to Jesus and he was concerned whether he was in fact the Messiah, whether he was in fact the one who was bringing this kingdom that John understood as being present with Christ, although there was much he didn't understand. And so he goes to Jesus, he sends some of his disciples while he's in prison and he says, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Reflecting there the words of Isaiah 35, 5 and anticipating this glorious kingdom when disease and sickness are removed, when hostility is removed, where righteousness reigns and Christ is present on the earth. It will be a rejuvenated earth that will easily yield its abundance. There's one other feature. It will be a time when the temple is reestablished. And this is probably one of the most disputed and to some the most ludicrous and theologically offensive realities of the millennial kingdom. And yet it is what is testified to us in scripture. Namely, that there will be a reinstitution of a millennial kingdom and sacrifices that go along with it. Now the question is, why would there be sacrifices when they've already been abolished by the final sacrifice of Christ? Hebrews 7-10 through makes that clear. And that would be going backwards, wouldn't it? In the redemptive accomplishments of God and Christ. And why would there be a temple since Christ replaced the temple and the church is called the temple of God and is present on the earth during the millennial kingdom? Why? Well, I think the best answers to that, which acknowledge that there are difficulties to be sure, the sacrifices are possibly memorial or they're a continual testimony to the world. Remember, there will be some unbelievers there of the atonement of Christ to the nations. However, we are to understand that the more difficult problem biblically lies with those who deny this temple and sacrifices who simply cannot make any reasonable sense of Ezekiel 40 through 48. There's no way to make that make sense if it is not, in fact, describing this future kingdom. Well, what is the purpose of this kingdom? And this I'll just have to state because of time. Well, we mentioned it already. It is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel to restore the people to the land which they forfeited through their disobedience. It is the final testimony of God's sovereignty over the nations and that he will on this earth establish his kingdom which he promised to his people and he will reign there forever through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And that is in fact what will happen in the millennial kingdom. So it is a time when he establishes his glory on the earth. Well, the world longs for peace. The world longs for peace and for righteousness, and it will come, but it will only come to the one who submits their life to the Lord Jesus Christ, who trusts Him, who has repented, who has turned from their sin, who has acknowledged Him as Lord, who delights in Him and delights in obeying Him and loves Him. Let me end before we pray with the words of Isaac Watts. We sing about this at Christmas. He actually wrote this psalm uh, reflecting on Psalm 98, which has the Lord coming to judge the earth and establish righteousness. But he wrote this hymn. Just listen to these words and then we'll pray and close our service. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. White fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains. Repeat the sounding joy. 
No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow, far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonder of his love. And that's what we anticipate. Because of the time, I'm going to pray, and then we'll close the service after that. Father, we thank you for the glorious testimony of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your sovereignty over the nations that we read about in Isaiah 40 before we sang, Behold our God. Which are the very words you said to the nation of Israel, Behold your God. The one who spread out the heavens like a tent. Who knows the stars all by name. And who will accomplish all of your purposes for your people. And though the nation of Israel particularly is marked sadly by rebellion through much of their history. Ultimately having the kingdom temporarily be focusing on the Gentiles and their salvation. And not the Jews. Yet that time will change according to your plan, according to your word. And you will, though after much tribulation, bring them to trust in their Messiah. And we, together with them, participating in the promises that you gave to them, will see your glory on this throne, on the earth, in this glorious time. But even this is only a foretaste of what our hearts truly long for, And that is the eternal state, a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more temple, where there is no more sea, where your glory lights the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. And you have determined to display the riches of your kindness on us in Christ Jesus forever and forever. And where love is perfectly lived out, ours to you and ours to one another. Lord, keep us encouraged with this day, encouraged in our walk of pursuing holiness in our battle with sin, encouraged in being faithful witnesses to you, and encouraged though so much around us looks bleak, we know the end. You win, and we will be with you, for we are on the Lord's side by your sovereign grace. And I pray for any here who don't know you, and certainly there are some, that you would Reveal their condition of their heart and bring them to trust in the King of kings and the returning Lord of lords and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.